0: Good morning to you. We are making our way through the Gospel of John and considering how we see and understand John to be presenting to us the presence of God in the midst of God's people so that we too might experience God's presence. Today we're looking at the story of the raising of Lazarus, which is in John 11, and you can turn there either in your Bibles or in your worship guides. And as you turn there, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to him, un- said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. What is the story of Lazarus about? In verse four, John seems to make it clear. Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The story of the raising of Lazarus is intended to relate to us the very glory of God, the glory of the Son of God, and Jesus will say later toward the end to Martha, did I not tell you, if, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So, John chapter 11 is intended for us to be a window under the glory of God and the glory of the Son. Glory can be a very abstract concept. How do we see this glory God manifest for us that we might participate in it? And as we seek to participate in God's glory, to, to appreciate it, to understand it, we find that we increasingly become revealers of that very glory. How does all this come about? Well, The first thing I want to point out to you is that there is glory in the trust that Jesus demonstrates In the Father. We see this in a number of ways. Initially, it's an odd comment. The text says uh, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and then it says immediately, He delays two days. He's got affection for these individuals and he knows they're friends, but he decides that he's not going immediately to meet Mary and Martha and to deal with the situation of their brother. We can presume that the situation is quite dire. After all, they are sending for Jesus in the midst of the sickness that Lazarus is suffering. But Jesus decides uh, to hold off, which must have been a difficult decision. Right? Jesus, from the outset, appears to know full well that by delaying, Lazarus will die. And so by this very decision, he's saying, I'm willing to allow Mary and Martha and all of the friends of Lazarus to enter into tragedy to enter into hardship, to suffer and to mourn, this is a necessary part of the story that's going to unfold. This is the first way we see Jesus trusting in, in the Father in terms of making this difficult decision, and rather than immediately going to help those that he loves. Well, two days go by, and Jesus decides, all right, now we're going to turn our attention toward Mary and Martha and head in that direction. Heading in that direction means that they are going to have to pass through again the land of Judea, which is just where in the not-so-distant past, the Jewish leaders were trying to stone Jesus. So the disciples, you can hear their consternation, uh, really? Do you remember what just happened there? And in verse 8, they say, are you sure you want to go back there? See, so Jesus uses this opportunity when the disciples, re- you do realize you're leading us into harm's way. As they're asking this question, Jesus uses it as a moment, a teaching opportunity. And he says in verses 9 and 10, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. What is Jesus saying to the disciples? He's already identified himself as the light of the world. And so he's saying that as he is present... It is better to walk in His presence, in the light, even though that may be perceived as leading into a place that is dangerous. It is better to be with Jesus in danger than to be without Jesus, because to be without Jesus is simply to be stumbling in the night. It's the difference that He holds out to them as they wrestle with whether to follow Him and what direction He's actually leading them in. And what's interesting is the conversation unfolds in this Incredibly well-told story is Jesus begins to reveal, yeah, we're going and, you know, we need, we're going to wake Lazarus up. He's fallen asleep. The disciples don't get it. They think, oh, well, if he's just fallen asleep, he's got something that'll pass. Why do we need to go down there? Let's avoid Judea. And Jesus ultimately has to say plainly to them, no, Lazarus is dead. And so we're going actually to raise him from the dead. And still the disciples are reluctant and don't want Really any part of it, because even after all of this revelation, Thomas says, uh, in verse 16, alright, let us also go that we may die with him. So place yourself in the shoes of a disciple for just a moment. You've been through Judea. Your life, the life of Jesus has been threatened. It's a dangerous place. You know that Lazarus is dead and that Jesus intends to go and do something miraculous and You're faced with this decision of whether to follow Jesus into danger, potentially to see something miraculous, or to have a reluctance to trust him in the midst of going in that direction. We realize that Jesus is leading those who are following him, and we see a remarkable trust in the Father's will. Jesus is willing to uh, delay, which means suffering and tragedy for Mary and Martha. And he's willing to lead the disciples into danger as a result of carrying out what he perceives will bring glory to the Father and glory to himself as the Father sent one. He acts radically as a result of his trust in the Father, something that's difficult for the disciples to understand. Does your trust in Christ cause you to act radically in obedience? To understand that he may indeed lead you into harm's way, or he may allow you to engage and counter, endure suffering or trial as a result of identifying with him, right? I said at the outset of this sermon, it will be true of all three points, that to understand the glory of the Father and the Son that is revealed in this passage calls us to participate with that glory, and in participating, we become revealers of that glory. And if the glory of God is revealed in the Son who trusts Him implicitly to do things that seem hard for us to understand and hard for the disciples to understand, then that means that we reveal that glory as we trust Christ, wherever He may call us, even if those decisions are difficult to understand. Is there a radical nature Is there a sacrificial nature? Is there a willingness to part with the wisdom of this world if you really believe that Jesus is leading in a particular direction? I've been frustrated with my own faith. I think it it oftentimes feels anemic. And by anemic, I mean this sense that when I look around, I say, yes, I worship Jesus. Yes, I spend time reading the Bible, so on and so forth, doing the basic things of faithfulness. But then I say, well, how different does my life really look from my neighbor's? How different? Do I do I spend my money radically different? Do I spend my time radically different? Do I actually love things in radically different ways and choose radically different priorities? It seems, given given the New Testament and the history of the church, that those would be what characterize actual true discipleship. If those things are lacking, do I really believe what's being held out in this chapter, which is Jesus is the one who raises the dead? If I really believe that, what, how would I help but f- making radical decisions? I was uh, tickled by the story of Werner Forstmann, who in 1929 was a surgical uh, intern in Germany. And he was reading an obscure medical journal uh, in which some doctors had threaded a tube up a horse's leg into the horse's heart, with the horse being unaffected. And so he went to his superiors and said, "What? if we can do this for a horse, why not for a human being? And his superiors say, uh, that's crazy. Uh, anytime that we touch a human heart in surgery, it goes into fibrillation and the patient dies. You're an intern. You need to go back to work. So Forsman did go back to work. He s- snuck a urinary catheter and he grabbed a nurse and persuaded her to help him. And he went into the x-ray room and he slit his arm and proceeded to thread the catheter into his own heart and had the nurse take nine different x-rays to prove that it had been done without him being affected. He published his results, which were quite a stir, obviously, and was promptly fired from his job. Uh, And in 1956, he would receive the Nobel Prize for Medicine as one of the fathers of what we now refer to as cardiology. His uh, discovery would lead to all kinds of science. But I, what tickled me was how much confidence do you have to have in the belief that this is going to work to sit in a room and thread a tube into your own heart? That's, that's some pretty serious confidence, any way you spin it. Now, that's a story about a man having confidence in his own opinion about something, and what we're really talking about is having confidence in Jesus that he is the one who raises the dead. But when we compare the two stories, I think there's, there's certainly part of me, and I expect there's part of you, that recognizes you don't have the same kind of conviction that a man threading a tube into his own heart had. And that Jesus is the one who's resurrected from the dead and is the one who raises the dead. Because if you did, you'd be doing crazy things like that. Or at least things that are a little bit crazier than the things you're doing. And so the first way... That the glory of Christ is revealed in our passages through his radical trust in the Father. The second thing uh, that I think points out the glory of God the Father and the glory of the Son is the glory of his faithfulness to his promises. So we've got the glory of trust, and now we're considering the glory of promise. The f- there's a real sadness to this chapter. The frustration of the people who have suffered the loss of Lazarus is palpable, not just in the loss, but in that Jesus could have done something. In verse 21, uh, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right, can you imagine meeting Jesus and, and hearing that and knowing that there's some level of truth to that? It would be a hard thing to hear. And Mary says the same thing in verse 32, and then the others who are gathered say the same thing in Verse 37. Everyone is saying, Yo, couldn't this whole thing have been avoided if you had shown up in a timely manner, Jesus? We wouldn't have had to go through this, and Lazarus would not be dead. Martha's uh, her expectation is hard to hard to make out in exactly what Jesus is going to do. In verse 22, she seems to indicate that Jesus can do whatever he says he's going to do. So, Tim, I know that you can do whatever you're going to do. But then afterwards seems to indicate that she does, she believes resurrection is only a future possibility, not something that's going to happen in the here and now. And that's what we would expect for someone who is Jewish in the first century. Resurrection was something that would happen at the end of time when God fulfilled all of His promises and He, uh, He, He put away sin and oppression and restored His people and brought resurrection in for all people. But here we have resurrection happening for one person in the middle of time, and it's unexpected. There's some precedent, to be sure, but it's something that is odd and not something that was widely anticipated. And so Jesus is actually fulfilling the promises of God in the very presence of Martha and Mary and, ultimately, Lazarus. And so Jesus will challenge Martha And she says, Yes, I know everybody's going to be raised at the end. That's coming. Jesus says to her, No, I am the resurrection and the life. It's right now and the resurrection, it's present with you. And it's embodied in me a person. And she pushes him, Do you believe this? And Martha says, Yes, I believe that you are sent one from God. You're the anointed one, you're the king who has to come. I believe this, and yet we know that she struggles with her belief. But right? she confesses appropriately that Jesus is the King who was to come. And then, uh, just a little while, Jesus will get ready and says to raise Lazarus and says, "Roll the stone away." And Martha says, "No, don't do that. There'll be a smell." There, there's no expectation at that point that something astounding is going to happen. So she believes, but she doesn't believe, or she doesn't yet have full understanding, and we can sympathize and find Martha in our own stories that we indeed believe, even as we've sung. We believe, but we ask God to help our unbelief. We have trust, but we ask Him to help our lack of trust. Uh, David and Karen Mains have written, really, I think a must-have children's book, that's entitled uh, Tales of the Kingdom. And there's as much in it for adults as there is for, for children. Uh, and children's literature is often such a great way to really see if you have an understanding of what the gospel is. Because right? if you can't explain it to someone who's a child, then you probably don't understand it nearly as well as you think you do. And they tell the story of the enchanted city, which is under the spell of the enchanter. And the phrase that must be always rendered by the subjects of Enchanted City is there is no such thing as a king death to pretenders. And so everyone in Enchanted City lives under the lie. There's no such thing as a king death to pretenders, and they serve the enchanter. But there is a rumor that the king still exists, and he still rules outside of Enchanted City if one is brave enough to head in that direction. And through Stone Gate, one will find what is called Great Park, where indeed the king still uh, still reigns. One of the gates to Great Park, fittingly, is in the city dump, perhaps the last place you would look. And there, a small girl uh, lives in the dump who's been abused by people in Enchanted City, who's been beat up, who is hungry, and uh, the caretaker, who's kind of a Holy Spirit figure in the book, goes and finds her in the dump, and uh, she says, I'm dirty, this her name, that she goes by, is dirty. I'm dirty, I never wash, I never cry, I'll fight against anything that raises a fist to me. What a great picture of human sin, of human pride, of human rebellion against God. As one removes himself from God, they become more confident in their self-sufficiency and angry at everything. I don't need to wash. I never cry. You can't hurt me. My name is Dirty. Well, she faints from hunger and from the wounds she suffered and caretaker takes her into Great Park. Where he and his wife, Mercy, tend to her, but Dirty won't have any of it. She won't change. She doesn't want the compassion that's being extended to her. And ultimately she decides, I would rather simply live with the pigs. I have more respect for them, their slop is fine for me, and I don't have to put up with any of you annoying people that are trying to change me or want me to be something different than I am. But there's one thing that Dirty can't stay away from, which are the great celebrations, which happen occasionally in the forest and Great park, to which the king occasionally comes, and everyone's true identity is revealed. And so she sneaks one night to watch the great celebration. And as she's sneaking up on it, she's spied out by a beggar who's passing by. And the beggar pauses and talks to Dirty and tries to invite her to the, uh, to the great celebration. But Dirty, uh, wants no part of it. And she pretends to be a pig and says, I'm good. And she mocks the beggar and makes just expresses anger to the beggar. The beggar goes on, and as Dirty continues to spy on the great celebration, it's revealed that the beggar himself was the king who invited her to sit at his table and feast with him. And she had rejected the invitation, actually, of the king. And this causes her to, to begin to believe in the love of the king that he would actually invite her to sit at such a table. And so she says, I know what I'll do. I will go and I'll wash myself. I'll make myself clean, and then I can sit at the king's table. But after washing herself and becoming very clean on the outside, she laments and weeps and says, I've washed and washed, but I'm still dirty. I'm all pig inside. The king will never love me. It's too late. Unable to receive the love of the king, thinking that she must make herself worthy to receive the love of the king, She realizes that she's incapable of that task. But ultimately, the king would come to her again. And this is that piece. She could hear someone speaking. It was the voice of the beggar king. He was saying, come, come with me. Be my special guest at the banquet table. Dirty kept her eyes closed. His special guest. She could feel something pouring over her. It flowed down through her starting with her head, then behind her eyes, all through the knots and gnarls of her insides. It was warm, it was gentle, it was fluid. Mercy whispered, it's king's love, dirty king's love. Turney could hear the voice again. The king was laughing, then he stopped. He said, I'm so glad you'd rather have me than your pigs. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, which is shorthand for all of the promises that God has spoken in the Old Testament, are yes and amen in me. The king has come, and he extends resurrection to those who would believe. He asks Martha, do you believe? Which is the same question that would be posed to us. Do you believe? That the king has such love for you that he would not spare his own life and would make you clean and would have you sit at his table. Resurrection is not something that exists solely in the future. Resurrection does not begin at death. Resurrection begins a belief. Do you know that power of resurrection in the midst of your belief? It is the glory that Christ reveals to us of the kindness and love of the Father and His faithfulness to His promises. The third and last thing I want you to see is the glory of compassion. Remember, John's told us at the beginning this this story is about seeing the glory of God and this glory of the Son. So we see it. In Christ's trust in the Father, we see it in God's faithfulness to his promises in Christ, and we see it now in his compassion. In verse 33, when Jesus sees Mary and the other friends of Lazarus weeping at the tomb, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And in verse 35, it says that Jesus wept. Now, on one, from one perspective, isn't that an odd reaction? You almost might expect Jesus to kind of say, Hey, watch this. This is what I'm about to do. But it's not his reaction at all. It's, it's one of, of being deeply troubled and one of weeping. And the Greek here carries a real sense of anger, of rage. It isn't just sorrow. Jesus is filled with rage in the midst of what is happening. And clearly, from the story, obviously, he's not enraged at the people, at the morning, or at Mary, or at Martha, what has kindled Jesus' anger? It can only be the situation itself, that death has taken Lazarus. And Jesus rages at death. He's angry at something that was not intended by him for his creation, but something that came as a result of sin and human rebellion. And so, fiercely, he opposes it. And his anger at death, is rage... Is there not uh, comfort in terms of our anger and our rage at death? Goodness, do we not hide death in every... Could we be a society that has more removed death from our sight? From retirement homes to elderly communities to, to everything being done behind closed doors and funeral parlors, death has largely been excised from our culture and society. I think, in many ways, much to our harm. Have you ever watched on the uh, news when something terrible happens in the Middle East and there's a death? You watch the people react to that death? It's it's nothing but unbridled emotion, weeping and rage. It pours out of them like a, a fire hydrant that's been opened to relieve water pressure and us, and our posture, and our lack of vent. Those images on TV are much more akin to what we are seeing here in the reaction of the mourners, and the reaction of Jesus to death. And it is, frankly, a more fitting reaction. The death is an intrusion on God's created order, not something that was intended, that Jesus lays down his life so that we might have life, so that we might pass through death untouched. For Jesus to be the resurrection and the life means that he has, will lay down his life. His life will be spent so that we might have life. And it's in these three ways that I hope you marvel to some degree at the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. That Jesus would demonstrate such trust in the Father, that there would be such faithfulness to, pro- to God's promises, in, in Jesus Christ. And lastly, that there would be such compassion at the tomb itself. And yet, all throughout this chapter, one cannot get away from the question, certainly I cannot, that Jesus poses to Martha simply, do you believe? And sadly, at the end, he has to say, you didn't believe. If you had believed, didn't I tell you? You would see something great. But you haven't really believed. You've made the right confession, but you haven't really believed. What would it mean to really believe in resurrection? There's a story that comes out of uh, the deep forest told by a pastor, uh, pastor Aaliyah. Pastor Aaliyah was once a persecutor of Christianity. He didn't like the pastors who came into his village to preach the gospel, and so he participated in their beating and running them off. Until Leah had a son and around the six-month mark of that son's age, he became very sick, and he died. And Aaliyah remembered that the pastor had come to his village, said that his God promises that one can be born again. And so Aaliyah tells a story that he went and got the pastor, and he said, listen, you've made this pledge about your God. Come and do it, or I'm going to kill you. And the pastor came to the village and prayed for the boy, and the boy was resurrected. And Aaliyah became a Christian, and Elias started to preach the gospel and spend the next six, six years preaching the gospel in a village in which there was no convert. Now, I know some of you, right, you hear a story like that. It's really, really, our hearts are very funny if you think about it. We read the story of Lazarus and we say, yeah, sure. Okay. It's been around a long time. We've heard it many times. Things like that happened when Jesus was around. Then we hear a story of something like that in the deep forest and half your eyebrows go up and you think, yeah, okay, maybe. I don't know. Need to do some research, some fact checking there. Need to find out. It would be really nice if we had a video and some scientists on hand to do some examinations. Right? I know that's going on here. Right? Fine. And I, you know, there's no way that I can demonstrate whether that story is absolutely true. I'll tell you this, I believe it. And I believe it because, mostly because Elia went and preached the gospel then for six years without a single convert. Which is something I wouldn't do. Unless maybe God raised my son from the dead. So what it means, you know, we can talk about the glory of God in the abstract and we can talk about belief and trust in that in the abstract. But there's a picture of, oh, what does it actually mean to believe that resurrection happens? And the radicalness that comes out of believing that resurrection happens. If Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, if he is the one who himself has been raised from the dead, and if he is the one that guarantees our resurrection from the dead, then how can we but help but press in to the very glory of God that we might demonstrate the same trust and the same faithfulness and the same compassion that he does? Let's ask for his grace and mercy in them. God, our Father, we praise you this morning. We marvel at your glory. Glory that is revealed in the midst of difficult circumstance. Glory that is revealed in the midst of tragedy. And yet in the midst of this, you you bring back to life the dead. You are the God of resurrection. And you are the God of resurrection because you are the God of love and forgiveness. And for that we give you thanks, and we celebrate it this morning. And we are forever sorry that our life meant that Jesus must give up His. But we are forever grateful that we are made whole in His brokenness. Father, I pray that your Spirit would dare each and every one of us to believe this morning in the resurrection as we come, to partake in the one who is resurrecting. Ask your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.